Hello and welcome to the second podcast on liberalism. I was going to make this second podcast about all of the different political thinkers that you're required to know about for the Edexcel politics air level. But what I found when I started to record the podcast about John Locke, the first political thinker, was that I had far too much to say. And so instead, what I'm going to do is produce individual podcasts about each political thinker, starting with John Locke. I'm going to start by talking about the context in which Locke lived. Locke lived during the English Civil War. He witnessed the death of a monarch, Charles I, who was executed. He lived under the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. He saw the exclusion crisis and the Glorious Revolution. This was a period of great turmoil in English history, and it was a period in which people were starting to question the legitimate basis of political authority. And that's really the question that interests Locke in what he writes. I'm then going to move on to talk about Locke's social contract theory, and I'm going to discuss a disagreement between Locke and Hobbes about the state of nature with Hobbes envisaging that the state of nature would be very bad, and Locke having a slightly better view of the state of nature. This leads him to a view of the social contract, that individuals would contract into government with one thing in mind, which is to protect their rights. And therefore, for Locke, the state is seen as a necessary evil, which exists simply to protect our rights, and indeed if the government gets out of line, Citizens have a right of lawful rebellion against the government and can bring the government down. I'm then going to talk about Locke's theory of toleration. Locke was living in a period where there was conflict about religion between Catholics and Protestants and where some people argued that the solution to this conflict was the imposition of religious uniformity. Locke wants to argue against this and Locke argues in favour of a society where there is religious pluralism, and where the state really does not have much of a role in imposing any particular religious view on the community. All in all, what I hope you'll see in Locke is that he's quite a revolutionary thinker, that he goes on to inspire, in particular, the American revolutionaries, but also later liberals. What I hope you will see is that Locke deserves his title, the father of liberalism, because he really does go on to inspire many of the things that later liberals go on to think. I'm going to start by talking about the first of our liberal political philosophers, John Locke, who was sometimes described as the father of liberalism. He was born in 1632 and died in 1704, which means that he lived through a very turbulent period of English history. So I want to give you a very broad history of this period in time to try and give you an understanding of the context in which Locke was writing and to try and help you to realise uh, why it was that Locke was asking the particular questions that he was, and why he was giving some of the answers that he was. So Locke was a young man when the English Civil War was happening, which was a conflict between Parliament and um, the monarch over who should rule England. Locke's father fought on the parliamentary side of this civil war. Now, as we know, the parliamentarians won the English Civil War. Charles I was put on trial and he was sentenced to be executed, and was executed on the 30th of January 1649. This led to the protectorate under Oliver Cromwell, and then his son Richard Cromwell, before the monarchy was restored in 1660 under Charles II. Now when Charles wanted to pass the crown of England to his son, James II, this caused a crisis. 
This crisis was resolved during the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when the crown was passed to William of Orange and his wife Mary. The crisis was caused by the fact that James II was a Catholic, and Parliament did not want um, a Catholic monarch to rule the throne of England. So this broad history is an attempt really to get you to understand that in this period of time there's an awful lot of questioning of um, where political authority comes from. And broadly there are two answers to this question. The first is provided by Robert Filmer, um, a conservative political philosopher who defends um, the traditional way of thinking about authority at the time. He writes a book called Patriarcha in which he defends a doctrine known as the divine right of kings. And the argument here is that authority ultimately comes from above, that kings get their authority directly from God. And Fimmel makes this argument on the basis of looking at the Bible. Um, what he thinks, essentially, is that the first person to get authority is Adam in the Garden of Eden, and that that authority is passed down from Adam uh, to monarchs. The most important thing to recognise about Filmer is this argument that authority does not come from below, as we believe as moderns, but comes from above. Now this is something that Locke wants to attack, and in his most famous work, The Two Treatises on Government, it is the first treatise that attacks this doctrine of the divine right of kings. Now this debate between Filmer and Locke is quite arcane now, and it's not something we really need to go into. Um, but essentially what Locke does in the first treatise, he explores some of the biblical arguments used by Filmer and he discredits them. He then moves on in the second treatise to outline his social contract theory and his theory of limited government, which is mostly what we're interested in when we look at the political philosophy of John Locke. So I'm going to start by talking about social contract theory. And in order to talk about John Locke's social contract theory, it's important to understand what Locke was responding to. So the first social contract theorist in the English tradition is Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes writes a book called Leviathan towards the end of the English Civil War. Now in that book, Thomas Hobbes hypothesizes a situation called the state of nature. The state of nature is a situation in which we're perfectly free, where there is no authority, where there is no government. Now, because Hobbes had a very negative view of human nature, Hobbes believed that the state of nature would be a condition of perpetual war. There would be what he describes as a war of all against all. And according to Hobbes, in this condition, life would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. So it's fair to say that Hobbes has got a very negative view of what life would be like in the state of nature. And this is where there's a departure. So John Locke, when he starts to consider his own social contract theory, he starts from the same point. So he starts from the belief that there is a state of nature and that in this state of nature we are in a condition of perfect freedom without authority and without the government. But Locke's view of the state of nature is more positive. So Locke believes that within the state of nature, because we'd be perfectly free, we'd be in possession of our natural rights, which for him are our right to life, liberty and property. And we'd also be guided by morality, we'd be constrained by morality in terms of what we do to other people. So the state of nature is not going to be a dire war of all against all for Locke. It's going to be a much more peaceful place 
where we're in possession of rights and freedoms. The problem is that those rights and freedoms, our life, our liberty and our property, would be constantly under threat from other people within the state of nature. And this presents a problem. Now what Locke thinks will happen is that individuals will come together and they will agree to form a government. So that's Locke's social contract theory. And what we now need to think about is what sort of government people would agree to form. And for Locke, the sort of government that people would be willing to form would be a limited government, a minimal state, sometimes described as a night watchman state. In order to think about why the government needs to be limited, we need to think about those people in the state of nature and what their concern is in coming together to agree to form a government in the first place. Now what they're concerned about is that in the state of nature, in this condition of perfect freedom, their rights are not being protected. And so the reason that they create the authority of the state is simply to protect their rights. And therefore, Locke believes that the government that is created needs to be a limited government. The state for Locke is a necessary evil. The state is necessary because we need a state to protect our rights, but it is evil because if the state is to become too big, if the state becomes overly mighty, if we get the sort of state that, that uh, sorry, Hobbes had in mind, then the state itself will become a threat to our rights. And so the government needs to be limited, the state needs to be small. So there's a tension in Locke. For Locke, we can only have freedom under the law, because for him, quote, where there is no law, there is no freedom. And yet in bringing about the government, we've created possibly one of the greatest threats to our freedom. And the final thing to say here about Locke's social contract theory is what Locke thinks ought to happen if the government does overstep the limits that he sets for it. And here it's instructive to think about those that Locke goes on to inspire. Locke was incredibly inspiring for the American revolutionaries, for the founding fathers, for people like uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, who wrote the Declaration of Independence in 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, wrote Jefferson in that document. And Locke's writings inspired them to write a constitution um, that brought about limited government. Within that document, we have, of course, the Second Amendment, and the Second Amendment, recently interpreted, gives individuals the right to bear arms. And the Lockean idea here is that if the government is to become overly mighty, if it does start to threaten our rights, that we as citizens have a right of what he describes as lawful rebellion. That we, the people, um, as the people who originally signed the social contract, can take away the authority of the government if the government ever starts to threaten rather than defending our rights. And so Locke's broader influence is very important. In fact, the whole of the American constitutional settlement, uh, with things like checks and balances, federalism, uh, constitutionalism, a bill of rights, really the whole setup of the American government is very Lockean, in that it's designed to create a very limited government in a variety of different ways. The final thing we need to be concerned about in relation to John Locke's political philosophy is his views relating to toleration. John Locke writes an important contribution to the debate over religious tolerance 
when he writes a letter concerning toleration in 1689. Now here he's responding to arguments principally from Thomas Hobbes, that in order for a, a state, a government, a, a commonwealth to be peaceful, there needs to be religious uniformity. And there was a lot of this going on at the time. You had um, a large uh, disagreement within Europe between uh, Protestants and Catholics dating back to the Reformation. And one response from governments to this diversity of religious belief was for governments to try and impose religious uniformity, um, usually in quite barbaric ways. Now, the reason governments would do this is because they're trying to save the souls of their subjects. From the perspective of a religious believer, it is only by believing in their faith that salvation can be achieved, because it is only by believing in the one true faith that subjects will end up going to heaven. And so there's a legitimate justification behind this attempt to try and impose religious uniformity. Um, and the first reason is that you're trying to save the souls of your subjects by getting them to believe in the one true faith. There's also a belief that a uniform religion will promote peace and harmony within the Commonwealth, where religious division will sow the seeds of discord. Now, Locke argues against this view um, on several grounds, the most important of which is that the strategy employed by states that are trying to create religious uniformity, that are trying to get all of their subjects to believe in what they regard as the one true faith, that if your way of going about this is to try and use coercion, force, violence, maybe even torture, to try and get your subjects to change their minds, that you're not going to be successful. Locke's fundamental claim here is that the only way that you can change people's minds is through reason, debate, and argument. The only way you can change people's mind is by engaging them in discourse, by persuading them to change their mind. And so if you're really in the business of trying to save people's souls, you should try and discuss and debate with subjects in order to change their mind. And this leads towards a view that society should be much more tolerant of different opinions. Because it's only in a society where you can have toleration of different religious viewpoints that such arguments can take place. And so what we find in Locke here is a very early argument for a particular sort of society. Locke's vision of society is one in which it's possible for us to hold a variety of different views in relation to something like uh, religion, opposing people like Hobbes and others who want a vision of society where we all believe the same thing, because that, for them, will create a more peaceful society. And this thought that there should be a diversity of different views within society leads eventually to a view within liberalism that societies function best when there are a variety of different ways of life being practiced, where freedom of thought and discussion is well established, where people can use their reason to discuss and debate, and actually that it's only within a society that looks like that that humankind can make the sort of progress um, that we're used to seeing. So, to summarise, John Locke lived in turbulent political times. This led him to question political authority and where it comes from. He does this by engaging in social contract theory. 
and he comes up with a theory of limited government. That government exists to protect our rights, and that any government that goes beyond doing that should be challenged by the people, and ultimately, against a tyrannous government, against a government that seeks to violate our rights, we have the right, according to Locke, to enter into lawful rebellion. The sort of society that Locke has in mind is one where there is toleration of different religious viewpoints. This puts him at odds with many political thinkers of his day, particularly Thomas Hobbes, who argues that a peaceful society requires religious uniformity. In the next episodes, I'm going to be looking at some of the other political thinkers you're required to study for your A-level in politics on the Edexcel spec. Best of luck with your revision.